This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Our scripture this morning from Luke 15 Luke 15, 1 to 3, and 11b through 32. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his (coughs) slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. A beautiful parable, if it ended right there, but the text continues. It says, and they began to celebrate. Now, his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he, that is this older brother, older son, became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and is found. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, 
for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. <coughs> well, this is one of the most famous and beloved of all of the parables of Jesus. It has inspired art and poetry, and it's reminded many over the centuries of the wideness of God's love. That no matter how far we have strayed or what we have done, God is there waiting to welcome us home, waiting to embrace us. And we may read this parable and see ourselves as that prodigal son, that prodigal child, the one for whom the fatted calf is, is slaughtered and, and the robe brought out and the ring and the sandals. And in many ways, perhaps, this is precisely how we should read it, particularly if we've struggled with feeling accepted. If we have felt rejected by our peers, by our families, even by the church itself, this text reminds us that we can rejoice knowing that God does not reject us no matter what. Now, unfortunately, at certain points in Christian history, this parable is read in an anti-Semitic way, where the prodigal son is sort of read as an allegory for the Gentiles, who comes in later in the story of salvation and is welcomed by God, and the elder brother, the elder son, is read allegorically as the Jewish people, who kind of stand off and are upset that all these Gentiles are suddenly being welcomed in as children of God. Now let's, uh, and a lot of harm has been done through that reading, so let's just say plainly that that is a false reading that must be rejected outright. Now more, more recently, this parable has been read more in a, a evangelical framework, sort of a, a way to bring people to faith to bring people to salvation, and, and really read in, in a way that emphasizes heaven and hell, um, and that if we come and accept God's forgiveness, our destiny is, is, is heaven, and if we reject it, our destiny is to be left outside of heaven, uh, even worse, out in, uh, out in hell. And if you want to read a, a really good take, sort of deconstructing that and showing how that really doesn't fit with with what Jesus is saying, I encourage you to check out Rob Bell's treatment of it in Love Wins. But I wonder for our purposes if we can read this uh, parable even more broadly. And so what if we put it in a framework not of church uh, or salvation or heaven or hell, but rather perhaps in society at large. A society where we are as divided as ever. Brian McLaren and others invite us to consider that while the parable may seem, and does in some ways, of course, emphasize our estrangement from God, it perhaps has just as much to say about our estrangement from each other. Because more, in some ways, than being a parable about heaven and hell and who is in and who is out, it is a parable about, a parable about family, <clears throat> about identity, a parable about two brothers. And of course, what's more primal to identity than family? 
And as we often tell it, of course, the story climaxes when a runaway boy returns home feeling disgraced, hoping to re-enter the house as a slave, and the father graciously welcomes back as a son. But the real climax, of course, some writers propose, comes later when the father slips out of the welcome home party to speak with the alienated older brother who remains standing outside. And as the interchange unfolds, it's clear that the older brother, the older son, feels every bit as conflicted and confused about his identity as his brother. He says, listen, for all these years, I worked for you like a slave, never once disobeying your command. And yet you have never even given me so much as a young goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. <clears throat> right? You can hear that pain that he feels. And even though he has remained dutifully at home, he sees himself not as a son, but as a slave. Right, Taking orders, putting in his time, doing the right thing. And so both brothers then, Brian McLaren says, not just one suffer from an identity crisis. Neither sees himself as he truly is, God's beloved child who is connected to his brother in one family. Now the father's prodigal love to the younger son becomes the means by which the older brother, the older son, could discover how loved he himself is. Right? If, if he would have eyes to see and ears to hear. But he doesn't see it that way, does he? He sees it as the opposite, right? In his alienated and hostile identity, he can't even speak of my brother in the text. Right? Instead, he returns, he refers to this son of yours. Right? That's an important little note in the text. He can't say, my blank, fill in the blank, you know, younger brother. He says, this son of yours. But the father, right, cleverly, wisely, tenderly turns the phrase, referring to him as this brother of yours an invitational reminder to the identity of this older son. And so perhaps the primary message of this story is then not addressed to rebellious younger sons sowing their wild oats, which is how we normally read this text. The primary message is perhaps addressed instead to this hostile older brother and all older brothers who feel right and superior <clears throat> and offended, who won't join the party by joining God in welcoming and celebrating the other as brother. And so I think we tend, as I said, to naturally read this parable and put ourselves in the position of the lost son, right? The prodigal son who returns home and is celebrated. And that, of course, is a beautiful and healing reading. And the truth is, maybe it's hard to read this in any other way because the younger son is the one who is embraced, the one who is celebrated, the one who comes to his senses. <coughs> I love this note from Cheryl. She says, appreciate the absence of shame from the father. Absolutely. There's no, well, you did this and that. There's no litany of offenses, right? It's just welcome. And that is... Uh, 
a beautiful reflection of the welcome that God extends to all of us. And the truth is, it's much harder, right, to imagine ourselves as the older brother, obstinate, unwilling to budge, right, determined to remain out in the field and beyond the reach of a loving father. And yet the truth is, there may be times where it is appropriate for us to read it that way. There may be moments in which we ourselves unintentionally further divisions by assuming our own righteousness, our own moral perfection. So I'm going to give a few examples, but keep in mind we could really pick any number of issues at this point to illustrate the point. Now, perhaps we have been vigilant during this entire pandemic. I think that's true for, for many of us. We've social distanced. We've worn masks. We've gotten our vaccinations and boosters as soon as possible. We've done everything possible to mitigate the spread and keep ourselves and those we love safe. For these past two years of the pandemic, we worked as hard as we could, never once disobeying Dr. Fauci's commands. We might be tempted to look askance at anyone who does otherwise. Those who have squandered their health through dissolute, I mean unmasked, living. Or perhaps we've been working to raise awareness and make a difference on climate change for years, even for decades. We've driven a hybrid, reduced our red meat intake, put up solar panels, attended rallies, we were energy efficient before being energy efficient was cool. And it's awfully hard from that position not to view climate change deniers who drive gas guzzlers and mock solar and wind sources as being outside the fold of what is acceptable. Such folks, we might imagine, are not welcome in any community of justice we are seeking to create. We could go on about any number of similar good progressive issues in on which many of us have dedicated our lives to um, making change in and making a difference on. And as I have uh, traveled in my own journey of, of learning and, and growing, and I've shifted many of my views from my uh, formerly conservative place, both theologically and spiritually to, or theologically, I should say, and politically to a more progressive uh, or liberal place. Um, what I found in that journey is that that sort of evangelical or more conservative drive for moral perfection, well, there were times where I held on to that, but now held it from a new place. And so I continued to demand perfection. And so if a person didn't agree with me on a certain issue, let's say on foreign policy, on pacifism, uh, I felt they were wrong and unacceptable. If a person didn't say or hold the right stance on any number of issues, I wanted to label them as a centrist who was unwilling to commit, who was unwilling to do the hard work on an issue that I felt was critically important that we have to come to a certain position on. And I discovered in my run for office that uh, progressives are, are very good at uh, sort of not having room for folks who aren't exactly where they are on any number 
of issues. And so when I was in that place, I found people who didn't agree with me at times as intolerable, right? I had seen the light of progressive uh, moral perfection. Why hadn't everyone? And so what I'm saying is it can be very easy, even in our drive, our good drive, to follow Jesus, in our passion to seek justice, in our work to expand the kingdom of God and to change the world for the better, it can be very easy to suddenly find ourselves isolated on a hill that we have created of our own moral perfection. And suddenly, there's only room on that hill for us. And we are in danger of becoming the very thing that we thought we had left behind. We have become perhaps the very thing we despised. We've become those who don't have room for others. And so perhaps more than being just a story about reconciling ourselves to God, pictured here as father and divine parent, perhaps it is just as much a story about reconciling ourselves to each other Ryan McLaren writes, the moral of the story runs something like this. You can't maintain hostility against the other without also withdrawing from the father who loves both you and the other as beloved children. If you maintain hostility against the other, you stop acting like a child in this, or a sibling in the same family. You leave your true identity as child and start playing the part of a slave. When you cut off the other, you are breaking God's heart. God wants you to join God in loving the other as part of one family. And perhaps then it is not so much the parable of the <coughs> prodigal, perhaps then it is not so much the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the estranged brothers. Let's remember how our text began here in Luke 15. Verse 1 begins, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we told them this parable. But what would the meaning be like if we read the text in this way? Now all the anti-mask parents and critical race theory opponents and climate change deniers were coming near to listen to him. And the liberation theologians and climate activists were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes literally anyone and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. <laughs> I don't like reading it this way because I feel implicated. And let me be clear, right? It is right and just to spend your life working on behalf of caring for creation and seeking climate justice. We absolutely should be doing that. It is right and just to do everything you can to seek racial justice and racial equity and to bust your tail to seek justice and expand civil rights for our gay, queer, and trans community members and friends. And perhaps that includes ourselves. Right? And it is everything, it is right to do everything you can to stay safe during this pandemic. 
It is right to do all of those things and more, but let's not close the door behind us. We have to work for justice while still being invitational to folks who are not yet where we are. Let's not deny the humanity of those we often feel we're working against as we work for justice. Let's not recreate the exclusion that we are trying to leave behind. Because what Jesus is ultimately trying to tell us is this. We are all a part of one human family. That is our sacred identity. We are all children of God. And family always makes room at the table, even for the most estranged siblings. Amen. Maybe so. invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.